0: This is section 42 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 42, The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1864, part 3. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 10th, 1864. Race for the Occidental Hotel Premium the best trotting race of the season came off at Bayview Park yesterday afternoon, for the Occidental Hotel premium of three hundred dollars. The competitors for it were a stallion Kentucky Hunter entered by H. Fish, G. R. Period, stallion Captain Hanford, entered by Charles H. Shear, and a stallion George M. Patchen Jr. entered by W. Hendrickson. These are set down in the bills as the three fastest stallions on this coast. On the first heat, Hunter came in a length ahead of Patchen, and Hanford brought up the rear. Time, 2 minutes 38 seconds. The next heat was as closely contested as the first. Patchen was first, and Hunter and Hanford neck and neck to within 200 yards of the judge's stand, when Hunter roused himself and dashed up to the score a couple of lengths ahead of Patchen. However, it was pronounced a dead heat, because Hunter had broken into a run once or twice in going around the track, time, two minutes, forty-one and a half seconds. Hanford led for a considerable portion of the last half-mile, and all thought he would win the heat. The second heat proper was a handsome race, and was won by Hunter again, time, two minutes, forty-three seconds. Hanford came out third best. Hunter won the third heat also, leading Patchen about two lengths. Time, two minutes, forty seconds. The first premium of $250 was awarded to Kentucky Hunter, and the second of $50 to George M. Patchen. There was a large crowd present, and the race created unusual interest. Considerable money changed hands, but we did not bring any of it away. Previous to the Occidental contest, a tandem race came off for a purse of one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Mile heats, best three and five. Spot and Latham, driven by Mr. Covey, and Rainbow and Sorrel Charlie, driven by Mr. Ferguson, ran. Before the first half-mile post was reached, Ferguson's team ran away, and Covey's trotted round leisurely and won the purse. The runaways flew around the race track three or four times at breakneck speed and fears were entertained that some of this breakneck would finally fall to Ferguson's share, as his strength soon ebbed away, and he no longer attempted to hold his fiery untamed menkins, but only did what he could to make them stay on the track, and keep them from climbing the fence. Every time they dashed by the excited crowd at the stand, a few frantic attempts would be made to grab them, but with indifferent success. It is no use to snatch at a cannonball, A man must stand before it if he wants to stop it. One man seized the lead horse, and was whisked under the wheels in an instant. His head was split open a little, but Dr. Woodward stitched the wound together, and the sufferer was able to report for duty in half an hour. Mr. Ferguson's horses should be taught to economize their speed. They wasted enough of it in that one dash yesterday to win every race this season, if judiciously distributed among them. The only Christian way to go out to Bayview is to travel in one of the Occidental coaches, behind four Flora temples, and with their master spirit, Porter on the box, and a crowd inside and out, consisting of moral young men and cocktails. Mr. Leyland should be along to keep the portable hotel. The principal attraction at Bayview today will be a ten-mile race, single heat. Four entries have been made—Fillmore, gentleman george grissom's mare and another beast whose name has escaped our memory tomorrow the great equestrian race for the russ house premium of silver service valued at three hundred dollars will come off thirteen ladies have already entered their names for the skirmish the san francisco daily morning call september tenth eighteen sixty four curiosities the soldier boys, Perry and Rhines, in charge of the sanitary cheese and silver bar at the mechanics fair, have been presented with several curiosities which they have added to the greater attractions in their pagoda. One is an ancient teapot, two hundred or two thousand years old, or along there somewhere, at any rate it is very old, which was given to the boys by a lady in whose family it had been preserved for several generations. Another is a wine-glass, which was taken from one of the ships in Boston Harbor, just after our exasperated forefathers had thrown her cargo of tea overboard. The young lady who presented this relic received it from her grandfather, who took it from the vessel with his own hands. And still another is an old half-dollar, made in the second die ever cast in America. It was presented to Rhines, and he has given it to the sanitary fund, and has it on exhibition. It is worth twenty-five cents to see the sanitary cheese and the other curiosities, but it is worth double the money to hear the orator, Rhines, deliver his spirited and entertaining discourse concerning them. The man who exhibits the lions and tigers in the menagerie isn't a circumstance to him. We could print an extract or so from his speech, but we do not think it would be exactly fair to spoil its attractiveness in this way. Go and hear it yourself." A lady gave a dollar, a day or two ago, for the privilege of lifting the silver bar, but she miscalculated her strength somewhat, and failed to carry out her design. The bar weighs nearly two hundred pounds, and her lifting capacity wouldn't reach. The privilege is still open, however, to others of the sex. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 10, 1864. A philanthropic nation mr o c wheeler secretary of the california branch of the u s sanitary commission has furnished us a neat little volume entitled the philanthropic results of the war in america from which we learn that since the war began the american people have not only paid for its prosecution by enormous taxes but have voluntarily contributed toward caring for the wounded etc the immense sum of $212,274,259.45. That was up to February 1864. The figure must reach at least $250 by this time. This was not all given to the sanitary fund, of course, but to the hundred different departments of charity created by the war. How much of it came from California? The two-hundredth part, say. Only that— And yet ours is one of the greatest states in the Union. Therefore let her not complain, yet awhile, that the calls upon her in behalf of the sanitary fund are too heavy, but rather let her move steadily along, as she is now doing, in her aid to that charity, and continue to do it henceforward, as cheerfully as she has done it heretofore. Deposit your spare quarters on the Big Cheese at the Mechanics' Fair. It is the contribution of two whole-hearted brothers, and it is worth twenty-five cents to look upon such a monument of kindly Christian charity. After that cheese has gone the rounds of states and collected a quarter of a million for the sanitary fund, it will be cut up in New York and sold by the slice. What will California bid for the first slice? The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September Eleventh, 1864 Attempted Assassination of a Detective Officer Officer Rose, one of the coolest, shrewdest members of the detective force, was dispatched to Belmont on the San Jose Railroad by Chief Burke, on Friday morning, to arrest a suspected criminal named James Charles Mortimer, reported to be in hiding there. He was to find satisfactory proofs of the man's guilt first, and then make the arrest—his crime is to be kept a secret as yet. Arrived at Belmont, Rose got the proofs that he wanted from a woman with whom Mortimer had been living, and from her he also obtained a clue of his hiding-place, and captured his man. He then went to Santa Clara with his prisoner, in search of further evidence, and the two repaired to a secluded spot a mile and a half from the town at nine o'clock on Friday night, to get some stolen property which Mortimer said he had buried there. The prisoner watched his opportunity while the officer's back was turned for a moment, or while he was digging for the hidden treasure, and knocked him down by striking him in the back of the head with a stone. He then took the officer's knife from his pocket and cut his throat with it, severing the windpipe half in two. Next he thrust the blade into his throat and twisted it around. Then, to make the murder sure, he took Rose's revolver and struck him across the forehead with it, inflicting a ghastly wound. Considering his victim finished by this time, he returned to Santa Clara, rifled the officer's valise, paid for a check through to San Francisco on the freight train, but jumped off the cars near Belmont Station, while they were running slowly, and has not since been heard of. Rose lay insensible for some time, but woke up at last, stunned and confused by the blows he had received, and feeble from his loss of blood, and in this condition he crawled a long distance, and finally reached the house of a Mr. Trenneth, about midnight, where he was properly cared for, and from whence he was removed to Santa Clara yesterday. It was at first supposed he could not survive his injuries, but he grew better rapidly and constantly, and now no fears are entertained that he will die. A man of his nerve and resolution requires more than one fatal wound to kill him, he was brought home to the city on the evening train yesterday. This man, Mortimer, he has a dozen aliases, half-murdered a man named Conrad Fitzer, in Dupont Street, one night, and robbed him of nearly a thousand dollars, and for this highway robbery and attempted assassination, our lenient court of assizes, as usual, only gave him a year in the state prison. For the same offense, in the interior of the state, he would have gotten years at least, and been considered a favorite of fortune at that. But you seldom find a longer sentence than one or two years on our assize records. Mortimer is one of the worst men known to the police. He paid his fare to San Mateo, in the morning train, about six weeks ago, and then tried to slip by and go on to Belmont, but was detected by Mr. Nolan, the conductor, who put him ashore, and had a rough time accomplishing it. Mortimer swore he would remember the treatment he had received, and kill Nolan for it the first opportunity he got. Charles James Mortimer's photograph is number 64 in the rogues' gallery at the office of the chief of police, and the countenance is not a prepossessing one. Accompanying the picture is this description of him, written some time ago, NATIVE OF MAINE, OCCUPATION, FARMER, AGE, TWENTY-THREE YEARS, AND SIX MONTHS. Height 5 feet 6 inches, weight 160 pounds, hair light, eyes blue, complexion light, full face, red cheeks, good looking, has a crucifix with lighted candles, three pierced with arrows on his right forearm, printed in red and black ink, and on his left arm the letters C.J.M., also on one arm the name of Flynn, Captain Lee's, and a posse of policemen were sent down to Belmont by special train yesterday, and have scattered in different directions in search of the missing criminal. He will be captured, if it takes the department ten years to accomplish it. Since the above was in type, Mr. Rose has made the following statement. He was walking along with Mortimer, halfway between San Jose and Santa Clara, on the way to the buried property, when the prisoner suddenly jumped to one side, seized a stone, and knocked him down with it, as above stated, and stabbed him in the neck, swearing he would finish him. Thinking him finished, he went away, but returned in the course of ten minutes to satisfy himself. Standing behind Rose, as he lay on the ground, he exclaimed, in a disguised voice, "'Hullo, my friend! What are you doing there? Anything the matter? If you're ailing, my farmhouse is close by!' The stratagem was successful. Rose was deceived and raised his head, when the fellow remarked, "Oh, so you're not dead yet. I was afraid so. You've hunted me out, my man, and you can't live." And he drew Rose's revolver and struck him three powerful blows, two back of the left ear, one on top of the head, and several about the forehead. Before taking his final farewell of his victim, Mortimer robbed him of his knife, revolver, and forty dollars in money. Chief Burke wishes us to extend his warmest thanks to the citizens living near the scene of the outrage, for the assistance rendered by them to Officer Rose, and especially to the members of the Trenneth family, who sat up with the wounded man all night and did everything they could for his relief, and furnished him with blankets and bedding to use during his transportation on the cars also to Conductor Nolan and other officers of the railroad for their kindness in making every arrangement in their power for Mr. Rose's comfort on his passage to the city. Rose was doing only tolerably well at last accounts, and was flighty at intervals. THE SAN FRANCISCO DAILY MORNING CALL, SEPTEMBER 13, 1864. SAD ACCIDENT. DEATH OF JEROME RICE. On Wednesday evening last, while Jerome Rice, the well-known auctioneer of this city, and Rowland B. Gardner, one of his clerks, were on their way to the Warm Springs, near Santa Clara, they lost their way in the hills north of Vallejo Mills, and the night being somewhat dark, they drove over an embankment twenty feet high. Mr. Rice fell upon his head, and the force of the concussion crushed in the base of his skull and fractured his collarbone a fragment of which pierced one of his lungs. Mr. Gardner's left thigh was broken, and his body considerably bruised. Mr. Rice groaned in pain, and muttered incoherent words at intervals, but was never conscious up to the hour of his death, which occurred at two o'clock yesterday morning, nearly three days and a half after the accident. All Wednesday night, and all Thursday and Thursday night, through the blistering sun, and the cold, benumbing air of evening, The two men lay side by side and suffered inconceivable tortures from hunger and burning thirst and the sharp pain of their stiffening wounds, and Gardner spent the lonely hours in calling for the help that never came, for himself and his insensible companion, until he could no longer speak for hoarseness and exhaustion. Think of the raging fires in a throat subjected to such exercise as this, when no water had moistened it for a day and two nights on friday morning mr gardner began his terrible journey in search of assistance and for two days and nights without food or water he crawled backwards by the aid of his hands in a half-sitting half-reclining posture and dragging his broken leg every movement must have caused him exquisite agony the anguish of such a march cannot even be imagined and the distance accomplished in those forty-eight hours of suffering was only a half a mile On Sunday morning he reached the vicinity of a field and attracted the attention of a man at work in it, and the two unfortunate men were soon conveyed to a neighboring house and kindly cared for. When they went after Mr. Rice, one of the carriage horses had long since wandered away, but Roanoke, an old favorite and the property of Mr. Rice, was found keeping faithful watch over his prostrate master and gazing upon his face the noble brute, had never deserted his post for three days and a half. Hunger and thirst had failed to drive him from his allegiance. If at any time, during the two days, his comrade was absent from his side, the unfortunate man awoke from his delirium and realized that he was desolate and alone, and far from human help, it must have been some relief to his tortured mind, in that fleeting moment of consciousness, some balm to his aching wounds, some sense of friendly companionship to him in his loneliness, to see the eyes of his faithful horse looking down into his own, in mute sympathy for his distress. Mr. Rice's head, face, and body were swollen in an extraordinary degree, and blackened and blistered by the fervent heat of the sun. After lingering in misery for so many hours, death at last put an end to his sufferings at two o'clock yesterday morning his wife and family, who have been enduring for four years all the privations and misfortunes that war could entail upon them, in a section of Texas desolated alternately by both contending parties, and whom he had not seen and scarcely ever heard from during that time, will arrive here from Boston, to which port they lately escaped, day after to-morrow, on the steamer Golden City. After the long separation and hardships that have fallen to their life, it is cruel now to dash down the cup of happiness when it had almost touched their very lips, who among all the brave men that shall read this sad chapter of disasters could carry with firm nerve the bitter tidings to the unsuspecting widow and her orphans, and uncoffin before them a mutilated corpse in place of the loving husband and father they are yearning to embrace. Mr. Gardner is at Centerville, under medical treatment, but the remains of Mr. Rice will be brought to the city and kept until the arrival of the steamer, so that the stricken family may have the sad consolation of looking upon them before they are consigned to the grave. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 13, 1864. The Comanche. The work at the Comanche goes vigorously on, and is being rapidly pushed towards completion. The scattering holes that were left in the bottom of the hull, when the bulk of the riveting was done, have now all been reached by moving shores and supporting timbers. The outside tier of timbers running fore and aft, which is to receive the armor, is now put on from the bow back a distance of some forty or fifty feet on each side, and begins to give one a tolerable idea of her great strength and power of resisting the shots of an enemy. Much progress has also been made in the last few days in placing the machinery of the engine, and for turning the turret. The thorough manner in which all the work connected with the Comanche is done must be apparent to anyone who makes frequent visits to it. The vigilant eyes of Mr. Ryan, one of the contractors, who is also the superintendent of the work, are everywhere, and see everything." The foremen of the different divisions of the work are indefatigable in their efforts to have the labor performed in the most perfect manner. The receipts at the gates for the sanitary fund for the week ending Saturday will reach nearly five hundred dollars. A large number of our citizens visited the Comanche on Sunday. End of section 42